Startling new numbers from the CDC. 91 people a day dying from the opioid epidemic. New data reveals drug overdoses are now the leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 50. Overwhelmed and out of room. Right now, the Stark County Coroner's Office is using an emergency portable morgue. The opioid epidemic's body count. That's what usually gets the coverage. And the body count has been horrible. From October 2016 to October 2017, more than 46,000 people died from opioid overdoses in the U.S. That's a September 11th terrorist attack every 24 days. But there are other stories unfolding in this crisis. Stories of people devoting their lives to ending this emergency. Their compassion, their long days of work, their determination, that'll never lead the evening news. But we are going to tell their stories, right here. I'm Tina Arundel, and this is Prescription for Hope. Over the next half dozen episodes, we'll introduce you to some folks at Cleveland's public hospital system who are opening new fronts in the battle against opioids. Amid the despair, they're the hope. Amid the darkness, they're the light. The opioid epidemic will end these are some of the folks who will bring the dawn. Dr. Joan Papp has worked in the emergency department at Metro Health for more than a decade. She's been a witness to the frightening explosion of overdose deaths. We began our conversation by listening to a 911 call made by a mother in Indiana. A warning here. This is tough tape. We're not playing it to sensationalize, but to really show the human toll of the crisis. The family has encouraged its use. 911. I need ambulance. My son's not breathing. What's the address? 10731. 10731. Yes, hurry. Is he blue? He's white. How old is he? Oh, God, he's dead. Ma'am, I need you to calm down. How old is he? Ah! Ma'am? Ma'am, I need you to calm down. How old is he? Boy, that's hard to listen to. So you see overdoses and some people in the ED who don't make it, right? Have you ever seen families or heard families that type of reaction in the ED? Unfortunately, all too often. It's becoming a more and more common experience in the emergency department. Luckily, when people do make it to the emergency department, we're typically able to revive them. But unfortunately, you know, some of these cases do happen and, and we're reached too late, unfortunately. As a physician, seeing this over and over and over, how... How are you dealing with it as a person, as a mom? I don't think you ever get over it. And when I hear calls like that, I mean, it just, it's just a reminder of just how emotional this can be. You know, it's, it's so hard to lose a young person, a young person in the prime of their life. And, you know, I, I am a mother and I, you know, I have three young boys. My oldest is 13 years old and he's coming on some really you know, tough years ahead of him when there are going to be a lot of 
tempting things that are, are going to, he's going to be faced with. And I know that as a parent, I need to prepare for that. And I think, you know, kind of the work that I've been doing in the emergency department and the work that we've been doing over the past five years with Project Dawn is, has really kind of prepared me for that. Can you put the crisis into perspective? How bad is it? It's very difficult to overstate the scope of this epidemic. In 2007, there were 40 heroin overdose deaths in Cuyahoga County. Just a decade later, we have over 800. There's been no public health crisis of this magnitude in in our country's history. This This is just devastating. Let's go back to sort of the basics. Just define for us um, what an opioid is. Sure. The term opioid really encompasses all drugs that we think of as prescription painkillers like Percocet, Vicodin, but it also includes illegal substances like the illicit fentanyl that's out on the street, heroin, and all of the synthetic drugs like carfentanil and um, other fentanyl analogs. It's a very all-encompassing term to describe any sort of um, medication that acts at what we call the mu receptor in the brain to relieve pain. So how and why do people get addicted? Opioids are very addictive, um, primarily because they, you know, their their number one purpose is to relieve pain. And in greater quantities, they can cause euphoria. And um, they act by turning on the reward center of the brain. And when that reward center sort of is overstimulated, can get out of control. And folks really have a hard time controlling that and stopping that desire to get that euphoria or that um, pleasure from the opioids. Why are some people more prone to addiction and others not? Well, I think that's a very poorly understood um, question. You know, I think that genetically there are some folks that are a little bit more prone to addiction than others. You know, I, I don't know that we have a great answer to that question, but we certainly see patterns of family members becoming addicted. So how does addiction to opioids differ from addiction to nicotine, alcohol, or in other substances? Well, I think the, the most obvious answer to that is that the consequences are much greater, right? We know that addiction to alcohol and addiction to nicotine are certainly major health risks, and they can pose a, a long-term health problem for a person who is addicted to one of those substances. The problem with the opioid is that it acts so much more rapidly to wreak havoc on the person's life and can lead to fatal overdose in a much, much quicker time frame. I've heard before that it can just take one hit of heroin for somebody to be hooked. It's certainly possible. Um, you know, these are very powerful drugs, and we hear stories about folks who start with a prescription painkiller, you know, maybe from a toothache or from another injury that it turns on a light in their brain, and then they're unfortunately in a position where they are seeking that medication for, for a long time after that. Let's not kid ourselves. Opioids, at least at first, can make you feel good. 
really good. And right away, it was like, it just grabbed me. I was like, oh, this is, it's like this, this, you know, of all the things that I've done, this is the one. This is what I like. That's Aaron Marks, a recovering heroin addict who will tell his entire story in a later episode. His journey to addiction began in high school with the pills he got after his wisdom teeth were pulled. You know, it just, it just made everything feel right. I don't know, you know, so it's like, maybe there were some underlying issues with just discomfort, right? I don't know. I mean, sometimes people just don't feel right. And that made it right. I mean, that's the best way I can describe it. It It's just everything felt right. And I was like, this is good. I feel good physically. I feel good mentally, emotionally. This feels good. The problem with opioids is that once you take them for a while and then stop, you start feeling bad, really bad. That's called withdrawal. Songs have been written about how horrible withdrawal is. John Lennon's Cold Turkey is one of them. Here's Metro Health's Dr. Paul Manning. For most opioids, it usually begins within two to three days after the last use. Physical symptoms usually begin with some nausea, irritability, sweaty or diaphoretic, muscle aches, insomnia. I'm awake all night and the craving, and that's what is going through the person's mind at night when they're lying down is... I need a fix, I need my drugs, I need my drugs. I will do anything to get that. If I don't, I'm going to die. And then the feelings of worthlessness come on. My life is worthless without without this drug, I need it. And that's overwhelming. Withdrawal is awful. Aaron Marks again. The, the kind of cliche thing is like, oh, it's the worst flu you've ever had. But it, it really is. I mean, it's like imagine food poisoning on top of the flu, on top of, you know, getting like beat up nine rounds in a, you know, a, a boxing match. I mean, it, it is like your whole body hurts. You're waking up with cold sweats, um, nauseous, sometimes even vomiting, headaches, blurred vision. I mean, it is just just horrible. And so then it becomes this like anything to not feel that. Right. Anything. So that's why when you see people doing all these desperate things, you know, it's not to say that's excusable or, you know, that's okay. But it's like, I I get it. Like, I I mean, I can understand how somebody in a complete state of desperation would do something terrible, right? Because they're just like, they don't know what else to do. They just are, you know, they have to get out of that feeling. When a person is drug sick. Dr. Manning again. It used to be called jonesing. I don't know if that term's still used anymore. That is their priority in life. How can I stop this withdrawal? You just made me see and feel for the first time why somebody might run to their grandmother's purse. That's exactly what happened. And grab a $10 bill, grab that money. And their brain is telling them, this is the right thing to do for... You or me, most likely our brain is saying, oh my gosh, you don't take money from your grandmother. You don't rob money from your kid's bank. 
that's that's a horrible thing to do. It's going to ruin our friendship, our relationship. It happens to be illegal. It's unethical. I'll feel terrible about myself. Because of the long-term exposure to opioids, the chemically dependent brain has broken down all those pathways that give us those messages that this is not a good activity to pursue. It has developed pathways that tells the person only one thing. The best thing for you to do, the right thing for you to do, is to get an opioid. Today, after hundreds of thousands of overdose deaths, the dangers of opioids seem obvious. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. In the 1990s, a movement began to view pain as measurable and treatable. It became the so-called fifth vital sign. Giving pain the same significance as blood pressure or pulse rate meant that doctors needed to treat pain. And if they didn't, or if they undertreated it, they weren't doing their jobs. At the same time, pharmaceutical companies were aggressively marketing their pills as safe and effective. In 1998, Purdue Pharma sent a promotional video to thousands of doctors. We doctors were wrong in thinking that opioids can't be used long term. They can be and they should be. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids, but these are the same drugs that have a reputation for causing addiction and other terrible things. Now, in fact, the rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. Here's Dr. Papp again. In the mid-1990s, we really started seeing a shift in the use of prescription opioids for things that in the past we would have never used an opioid for. Things like chronic back pain that we would typically treat with physical therapy or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. And there was, there was really a shift into using opioid pain medications to control that type of pain as well and in large doses. You know, when that happened, that really sort of opened the floodgates. I think the opioid epidemic that we have seen is the result not only of a person's potential to become addicted, but also their exposure to the opioid. Because in the past, although you know maybe about 10% of the population is at risk for addiction, there was no exposure. But we know that since the 1990s, the distribution of opioid prescription painkillers increased dramatically, four or five-fold. And so while that 10% of people who may have been at risk Maybe only 1% or 2% of those were ever exposed. Well, now the odds of those folks who are at risk then additionally being exposed to that opioid has gone up so great and really put a much larger percentage of the population in harm's way. So when you add the physical effects of opioids, you feel good when you take them, you feel awful when you stop, to an accepting marketplace suddenly flooded with pills, you have the makings of a big problem. Now include opioids' most dangerous hazard, overdose, and you have a catastrophe. 
And we start with a hair-raising account of a young mother's heroin overdose with her three-year-old in the backseat. On the second day of school. At the newly remodeled Dayton Public Library. Man was found dead in the bathroom. In a store with her toddler next to her. While riding on a crowded bus at one o'clock in the afternoon. It reached sort of a tipping point for me around 2013 when I really felt helpless. I felt like these folks are coming into the emergency department faster and faster, and I'm sending them out without any resources, without any fire extinguisher. I don't have anything to give them. And I found it more and more frustrating that I wasn't able to help people. And so I did what an emergency doctor would do, and that is think about things that could potentially save a person's life. And Narcan or naloxone is a drug that I'm incredibly familiar with and very comfortable administering. We use it all the time in the emergency department. You know, it really is a miracle drug. It's one of the few antidotes that is effective as as any that we have. It works very rapidly. Um, Usually within one to two minutes, we're able to wake somebody up with the naloxone. It really is amazing how quickly we see that person sitting up and talking to us and telling us that they didn't overdose. (laughs) I thought that would be a great place for us to start. That was how we could get our foot in the door on this crisis and, and at least do something to stop the bleeding. That something was Project Dawn a program that's distributed more than 8,000 naloxone kits since 2013. The program has saved more than 1,700 lives in Cuyahoga County alone. Some people have said that naloxone is fueling the opioid epidemic. What do you have to say to those people? Well, I think that there's a lot of misinformation going around these days. Many studies have looked at outcomes in patients who have access to naloxone and found that mortality does indeed go down when people have access to naloxone. Naloxone is not a controlled substance. It doesn't have any abuse potential, and there are no ill effects if a person is given naloxone and they are not having an overdose. So this is a completely safe medication. It reduces mortality, and there are really no ill effects whatsoever from from its use. Narcan parties, right? So people get together and somebody's the designated naloxone giver, right? What do you have to say about that? So keep in mind, when a person is having an overdose, they're unresponsive, right? And so they are not in a position to rescue themselves with naloxone. And when we provide training to our patients who are at risk for overdose, we talk to them about making sure that somebody is with them who can administer naloxone. And so using drugs safely, or more safely, I should say, um, is, is key to reducing the harms of illegal drug abuse. So having a person on standby who is able to administer naloxone is the only way a program like this is gonna work. The success of Project Dawn has been remarkable. Dr. Papp's work has placed this life-saving antidote in literally every police car and ambulance in the county. Still, the program addresses only the final fatal moments of addiction. In late 2016, Dr. Papp approached the leadership at Metro Health with a proposal. 
an office dedicated to not only battling overdoses, but to a wider approach to opioid addiction long before a patient might stop breathing. The administration not only said yes, they gave her an office, they gave her a staff, and they named her medical director. We started the Office of Opioid Safety really with the mission of increasing opioid safety throughout the hospital and throughout the community through education, advocacy, and treatment. We did this because we recognized that naloxone and overdose prevention was vital and important, but it just it wasn't enough and we needed a little bit more of a comprehensive approach. The office is barely a year old, but already its initiatives are changing the way doctors treat pain, how overdose patients are treated in the emergency department, even how addicts get treated when they're arrested. Dr. Papp won't be stopped. So you're going above and beyond your duty as an emergency medicine physician. Why? Because this matters to me. It's not just my patients, but it's my community. It affects me in a way that I think goes beyond my work at Metro Health. You know, I've had family members that have struggled with addiction. I have neighbors and community members, and I have children. If I don't do something, I'm afraid that something won't get done. And I just want this place to be a safer world for my children to grow up in. Next time on Prescription for Hope. Why is Metro Health intentionally placing drug addicts in the emergency room? For me though, um, I'm on a mission. I am going in there to talk to the face of death and tell it that it has to go and convince this person that their life is worth living. Mm -hmm. And I only probably got this one shot to do it Hi, my name is Rose, and I'm a greeter at Metro Health Hospital, and I am here to make people smile, give a hug, and a laugh sometime. Prescription for Hope is a production of the Metro Health System, which is working hard to become the most admired public hospital system in the nation.